Awesome God, what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. In your holy name, amen. There are scenes that come up in your life that are hard to describe to people that weren't there. You know what I'm talking about? And if you're anything like me, you get frustrated by that. Because you want people to be as excited as you were, and when you're telling this story and you can see on their face that they're not, you get offended. At least that's how I am, right? But there are scenes in your life that are really hard to picture for those that weren't a part of it. Last uh, year, last summer, um, my family and I were blessed by this church to be able to take uh, a three-month sabbatical. And part of that for us is my wife, Diane, and I, we went on a trip to Alaska. Alaska has been at the top of our list of somewhere we wanted to go. So we decided, you know what, let's just go. And so we go there, and we get to Juneau, Alaska. And in Juneau, Alaska, we had the opportunity to canoe to what's called the Mendenhall Glacier. If you've ever heard of the Mendenhall Glacier, glacier before, um, what they tell me is it's not like other glaciers. One thing I learned in Alaska is that a lot of glaciers look like all the other glaciers. But this one is different. Don't ask me how. But the Mendenhall Glacier in Juneau, Alaska, it's about 14 miles across. And what's interesting about it as well is it's surrounded by 6,000 acres of vast federally protected landscape. And so you're literally in the middle of what feels like nowhere, a place that doesn't seem to have been touched by mankind at all. And it is absolutely breathtaking. But you have to canoe there. There's only two ways to get there. You take a a canoe or you take a helicopter. And so Diane and I, we get into this very large canoe with eight other people. None of us had any business being in a canoe anywhere. And as we get in there, we were able to experience some of the most breathtaking, most awe-inspiring images that I have ever seen in my life. You see eagles flying. You see, I I don't know that they were penguins, but that's what I'm going to tell you. You see penguins or some penguin-like creature on the side of the mountain. You hear the sounds of the water, the wind that comes down the mountains that surround you. And it is one of those experiences that when we got back, we're trying to explain to our friends and to our family the beauty of this moment, you can't adequately describe it. I tell you that because we hit this major climactic moment in the Gospel of Mark. That what Mark is intentionally trying to do is he's trying to choose the right words, the right imagery, the right phrases to set the right tone, to capture the glory of this moment for us as the reader. And immediately, we're going to be faced with a problem. And that problem, I want you a little bit to feel before we even get started, 
this morning. Our problem is this. You have to ask yourself this question. Do you feel the weight of this moment? Do you feel the weight of this moment that Mark is inviting us into, that something way more powerful, way more awe-inspiring than any experience on earth we can ever have? Mark wants us to be captured by it. And so my goal for us this morning is because I think the question that this story begs us answer is this. Do we have a vision for God's transcendent glory that is big enough to shape our imminent posture? Let me say that again because this is where we're focusing this morning. Do we have a vision Do we feel the weight of God's transcendent glory that is big enough, that is large enough, that has a big enough reach and scope of our life that it immediately affects and shapes our imminent posture? I don't do this often. Actually, I don't know that I've really ever done this, but I want to do it this morning. As we read our text this morning, I would actually invite you to close your eyes. This is a very sensory-oriented text, and and I want to invite you to picture it, to try to capture, to imagine what's happening, to push out the distractions that fill your minds right now, and to focus in into this scene. Just listen to these words in Mark chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them high up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, as you've attempted to capture that image in your mind, let me tell you, you're not even close. As we've traveled with the disciples through the book of Mark, we've noticed many times that Jesus does this interesting thing that he's also, as he's journeying place to place and as he's healing and as he's teaching and as he's preparing hearts for the kingdom that has come to repent and believe, What he's actually doing as well alongside of all those things is he's intentionally preparing his disciples to do the work of the kingdom. And he does that two different ways. He prepares them, he equips them for a mission that will go far beyond Jesus in two different ways. The first way is this, that he intentionally exposes them to scenarios that would push them beyond their human power and wisdom. He intentionally, he exposes them 
to situations, to, to scenarios, whether he's with them or whether he sends them out by themselves. He's putting them in situations where they have to ask the question, are we going to try to figure out how to do this ourselves or are we going to rely on something much bigger, much greater than us to push them beyond their limits? And the second thing that he does is in those moments whether they've made the right choice or not, he reveals to them his glory. He reveals to them his power, his wisdom, his compassion. Whether that's through miraculous healings, whether it's through the feeding of the 5,000, whether that's through gentle rebukes or important lessons or calming the storms or walking on water, in all of those, Jesus is intentionally exposing them to difficult situations and compassionately revealing to them the glory of who he is. But in each of those moments, there's also a lesson for us in that as well, that we have been invited into the same journey. Because when you think about it, our life looks much the same as that. We are constantly exposed to difficult situations, difficult moments in our jobs, in our marriage, our parenting, in life. And in those moments, we have to decide, are we going to allow ourselves to try to accomplish, to try to solve the situation based on our own wisdom and our own power, or in those moments, are we going to choose to submit to the lordship and authority of Jesus and allow the compassionate work of the Holy Spirit to work in and through us? Because it's when we decide that that we get to experience the second part, that God's glory being revealed through us, through the work of the Spirit. But the question that you should be asking at this moment is, well, how do we do that? How does that work? How do we take this extremely sensory-oriented scene that, that obviously was extremely powerful for Peter and James and John, but I already told you we can't really get close to understanding what was happening on that mountain, and so how do we take that and treat it and handle it in a way where today we fully grasp its significance? And I think there's, there's three things that, that we need to understand first before we can really wade into the depths of that. And the first thing is this. The first thing I think we need to understand is the transcendent glory of God. Now, when we talk about God being transcendent, here's what we mean. Simply speaking, we're saying that this, that God is outside of humanity's full experience, perception, or grasp. When we talk about the transcendent glory of God, that God is transcendent, what we are talking about is he is outside of our ability to ever comprehend or understand him. We can't grasp it. An example of this, um, hopefully, at some point in your life, you've experienced something that you would say was good. 
right? And that could be a lot of different things. Uh, you can have uh, a good meal. You can have a good conversation. And in those moments, you recognize that it's good, right? How? How do you recognize that a meal is good? It's not gross. Right? You enjoy it. You may even want more of it. You may even tell people about it and say, this was the best meal I've ever had. And then when they go there and they say, it was okay. You're a little bit insulted. Why? Because it was so good for you. We have good conversations. How do you tell if conversations are good? They're not awkward. You have people in your life that you can easily talk to, you can easily relate with. Even if you haven't seen them in a long time, you know that when you're back together, the conversation just continues in its goodness, right? Hopefully you have a person or a couple of people like that in your life. You know what it is. You know what it feels like. But what we so often miss is that we forget that goodness in itself doesn't come from those things. Goodness comes from something that's outside of that, something that transcends our ability to think, understand, or grasp. Now, I know I'm speaking in a lot of theological terms this morning, but I need you to hang with me because it's extremely important that we grasp these concepts to really understand the complexity of this narrative. Because what I want you to wrestle with right now in this moment is why should we be grateful that we worship a transcendent God? Think about that. Why should we be grateful that we have a God that is outside of humanity's experience, perception, or grasp? For the answer to that question, I would take us to Isaiah chapter 55. Where Isaiah says this in verses 8 and 9, God reminds us, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Think about that for a second. I've reached a point in my life, I haven't always been this way, but I've reached a point in my life where I can say, God... I'm glad your ways aren't my ways. I'm glad you don't handle things the way that I often think that they should be handled. I'm glad you don't think about things the way that I oftentimes think about things. God, I'm glad that you don't think about me the way that sometimes I think about me. Church, we should be grateful that God is higher, greater, and more than humanity can ever comprehend. We should be grateful that humanity has limitations and boundaries, but that God transcends those limitations and boundaries, that his thoughts transcend ours, that his ways transcend ours, because he's outside of our experiences. He's outside of our struggle as part of creation. He stands distinct as the creator. 
And ultimately, why we should be grateful for that is because, church, our response to the transcendent glory of God should be the ability to rest. Think about that for a second. If we've truly grasped and believed that God is outside of our limitations, our boundaries, our thoughts, our ways, then what that should instill in us, what the Holy Spirit should then create in us is the ability to rest because we don't have to be in control. Because we serve one that is not part of creation, but is the creator. When you think about it, our culture, they bask in busyness, right? We love busyness. We love, uh, in, in a way, we love wearing stress and the lack of sleep as a badge of honor. Right? Think about it. But when we're able to fully understand that God isn't burdened by our burdens, that what happens in that is that we slowly relinquish our attempts at earning an identity through our work. And we begin to rest in the identity that God provides and experience the freedom of his provision and care. And the first thing that we see in this transfiguration is God is transcendent in his glory. So let's get back to our passage. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and and before he does, he says something that's extremely significant, and we intentionally didn't read verse 1 at the beginning because I want to come back to it now. In verse 1, Jesus says to them, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And now the reason I want to read that here is because I want you to very clearly see what Jesus is doing, that Jesus is referring directly to what is about to happen. Sometimes people read this passage and they're like, okay, wait a second, Peter, James, and John, they died and we're still here. The kingdom of God has not come in its fullness yet, so what does all this mean? That's not what he's talking about. What Jesus is talking about is this is about six days before the transfiguration is going to happen. And he looks at his disciples and he says, truly I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And in that moment, he's talking to Peter, James, and John. And what he's not saying, but what he's saying is that in just a few days, you're going to come with me up this mountain. And you're going to see the kingdom of God come with power on the top of this mountain. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why do they need to see it? I mean, think about it. They go up there and they see Moses and they see Elijah and and, and Moses represents Jesus' fulfillment of the law and Elijah represents Jesus' fulfillment of the prophets that what's happening at the top of this mountain is the whole culmination of what God has been doing since the beginning. And Jesus, he wants those three and even more, he wants us to see the power behind the kingdom. 
The power behind the kingdom. That after all the suffering, after all the struggles, that that Moses and Elijah, they stand in the midst of the glory of God. That they communicate with Christ. That what's happening is they're there to remind us that being devoted to God and being dedicated to the service of God is the pathway to sit in the glory of the kingdom. And church, I have to confess that at times I don't know that we feel the weight of that. That are we longing to sit in the glory of the kingdom of God so much so that it shapes our devotion, that it shapes our service for how we live in the struggle now. We can't stop there because if we only learn from this moment that God is beyond us, that he's transcendent, then what happens is we're tempted to believe that God is too big for us. That he's so big, he's unapproachable. He doesn't long for relationship with us. Which is why we also need to understand what we see in this passage is the imminent presence of God. So hang with me here. If transcendence of God means he is outside of humanity's full experience, perception, or grasp, the imminence of God means that he is knowable, perceivable, and graspable. Now you should be saying, hold on. I think you just said two things that are different. And the answer is, yes, I did. But this is huge because John is one of the disciples who witnesses Jesus on this mountain in all of his transcendent glory. And what's awesome about John in this moment for us to understand here today is that he sits down years later to write his account of the gospel. And the goal of his gospel, we we had a class this morning that met, and we talked about the four gospels and their different views, but the goal of John's gospel, he's writing, he's sitting down, and he wants people, simply put, to believe in Jesus. So he sits down years later, and he's thinking back to this moment on this mountain. And then he puts his pen to paper, and what does he write? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in that moment, in the opening line, He's talking about the transcendent glory of God, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. But then you keep reading down a little further into verse 14, and what does he say? And the Word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And what John is doing in that moment is huge, is he's saying that the unknowable, the ungraspable came to be known and to be grasped. The transcendent became the imminent. The beyond us came 
beside us. And here's what I want you to hear in that. That we worship a transcendent God because we understand that he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He's that big. We worship the imminent God because the creator God of the universe has made himself knowable to his creation. So let's talk about Peter real quick. I love Peter. He gets a bad rap in this story, I think. Because, now, don't get me wrong, Peter says some dumb stuff sometimes. That's 100% accurate. I don't think this is one of those times. Let me explain why. So what does he say? Peter says to Jesus, remember, they're terrified. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say because they were terrified. I don't know how you work, but I've learned this about me. There's two responses when you're in an uncomfortable situation. One is to not say anything. And two is to say all the things. (laughs) And if you know me at all, I'm a hard two. Right? Uncomfort happens, I just start saying stuff to try to ease the comfort, right? Anybody else like that? There's like three of us, okay. We're here. I respect the rest of you, but it's us three that make things happen, okay? But Peter's kind of having these moments. James and John, they don't know what to say. Peter's like, I don't know what to say, so I'm going to say something. And and here's what happens, though. He says, I have this idea. It's good that we're here because we're going to make three tents for you guys, for Jesus, for Moses, and for Elijah, And it's tempting to be able to look at this and say, man, this is just a typical Peter moment. He doesn't know what he's saying, blah, 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 blah. But that's not what's happening. Because Peter is very familiar with the Old Testament. He's very familiar with the things that have happened in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, where did the glory of God dwell? In a tent. And why did the glory of God dwell in a tent? Because if God's glory was out among the people, the people die. And so Peter understands the significance of this moment. And he's literally saying, with all of his knowledge, I mean, I just, I think about what's going through his mind in such a rapid pace, right? You go to Exodus chapter 33, and there's this story where where Moses asks God, he says, God, let me see your glory. And God says, you don't even know what you're asking. Because if you looked upon my glory, you were, you're dead. You would die. He says, so let me make a deal with you. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm going to place my hand over your face, and I'm going to walk by. And when I walk by, you can see the back of my robe. So that's exactly what happens, right? God takes his face or his hand off of Moses' face. Moses looks out, and it's this beautiful, miraculous, glorious robe of God. And what is the result His face becomes glowing to the point where when he comes down off the mountain, everybody's like, oh, man, I can't. And they have to cover his face up. That's how much just a little piece of God's glory impacted Moses. 
And fast forward, there's a, a similar episode even with Elijah. Again, I don't think it's ironic that it's Moses and Elijah that are up there. First Kings chapter 33, Elijah kind of has this same experience where he's there and, and he hears this strong wind, but God is not in the wind. And then he experiences an earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And he sees a fire, but God's not in the fire. And then he hears a low whisper. And it's the voice of God, the glory of God. And just by hearing the glorious whisper of God, Elijah's face glows and he has to wrap it because it's too bright. And so there's our buddy Peter. He's on his face because he's terrified. And he knows that in the past, God's glory is deadly. And so I don't think he's missing the mark. He understands what's happening in front of him. And he's scared to death because he should be. See, Peter realizes what sometimes I, I don't know that we've all the time fully grasped is, is that there's this infinite gap. We call it sin, right? There's this infinite gap between creation and the creator, between the people of God and the corrupted creation. And however big we probably think the gap is, it's imminently bigger. But what happens? What does John tell us in the opening scene of his gospel? That the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God on the other side of the gap became the bridge over the gap. The transcendent became imminent, and it's the imminent presence of God that ushers us into his glory. Because look at this, Mark chapter 9, verse 8. Suddenly, looking around, Peter, James, and John, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus only. And what that tells us is that Jesus is the embodiment of the transcendent glory of God that came to be imminently present with us, to usher us into the fullness of God's kingdom. But the real question is, church, what should our response be? How should the people of God respond in that? said to be one of the greatest sermons that has ever been written on the topic of, of the glory of God. And, and I would encourage you, if you've never read it, I, I would encourage you to. It's C.S. Lewis's, uh, he did a sermon called The Weight of Glory. And in that, he has this quote. He says, we're always falling in love or quarreling, looking for jobs or fearing to lose them, getting ill and recovering, following public affairs. He says, if we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. The only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. 
because favorable conditions never come. Favorable conditions never come. Jesus, in this moment, he sets his sights now on Jerusalem. It's part two of Mark's gospel, where Jesus now really turns toward his mission and why he has come to suffer and to die. That the transfigured Christ will soon become a disfigured sacrifice. And the hard truth for all of us to grasp, and I think Lewis paints it really well in his writing, is is that suffering precedes glory. That what does Jesus tell us? What does it look like to follow him? To daily take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to follow him. Suffering precedes glory. Again, think back to Moses and Elijah. Both of them knew great suffering. Peter, James, and John will leave this mountain, and they will still know great suffering. All of us in this room, I guarantee it, have known and will continue to know great suffering. But remember what I said at the beginning. What does Jesus do? How does he prepare and equip He exposes us to difficult situations. And in those situations, it's an invitation not only for us to make a choice on will we rely on our wisdom or the wisdom of God, but in those moments, it's really a much greater invitation to experience and know the full glory of God through his spirit. But the question that allows us to get there is do we have a vision that is big enough of God's transcendent glory that's big enough to shape our imminent posture in our suffering? I mentioned this at the beginning. There were eight of us in a canoe who shouldn't have been in this canoe in any way, shape, or form. We're not canoe people. My wife and I had never been on a canoe, nor have we been on one since. So all eight of us are there. Again, I cannot stress this enough. Zero canoe experience across the board. And before we start, we have to carry the canoe from the middle of the woods to the shoreline. It's only by God's grace that we made it that far. We get to the canoe, and our instructor's telling us, okay, here's all the things and the commands and yada yada, and what are all of us doing? Well, we're taking selfies because we're in life jackets and have a paddle. We got helmets on our head which should signify that we're about to enter into danger and should pay attention to what our instructor is saying. This was a perfect photo opportunity. So we get in the canoe, and we get a little bit out, and we start going in a circle. (laughs) And I don't know what you call this moment. I'm going to call it for what I feel like it was. The instructor put us in timeout. is we're out there, and I confess, I was one of these people. We're concerned with just taking pictures and, you know, whatever. I'm not paying attention to what the guy's in front of me is doing. I'm getting a little angry at him, actually, because he keeps splashing me with his paddle. And our instructor says, everybody stop. And I say, okay. He says, put your 
put your paddles in the boat. So, okay. And he gives us like this little pep talk. He says, listen, you, you've got to work together. You've got to listen to me if you're going to get across. So we said, okay, we got it. Put our paddles back in. We're doing a little better this time. Then it starts to sleet on the lake. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when you want to see the landscape that's around you and it's sleeting, it hurts your face. <laughs> Dinah sitting next to me. She's like, do you see that penguin creature thing? on the side of the mountain, I'm like, yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, it hurts so good. Oh. And so we're all kind of getting distracted because the sleet's getting a little harder. It's getting a little more difficult. The wind's coming. And I hear our instructor at the back of the boat says, just listen, paddle, paddle. And I remember this about halfway through. Even though it wasn't said, I feel like all eight of us in that canoe got this idea that if, if we're going to make it across to the other side to experience this Mendenhall Glacier, then we have to listen. We've got we've to tune out everything else that we're thinking about. And we've got to listen. And I tell you, it was hard. I've used muscles that I don't think I have anymore. And we got to the other side, and it was so frustrating and so painful. But when we got to the other side, almost immediately, that all went away. Because I got out of the canoe, and I realized I'm standing on a glacier. And it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. Church, Jesus is the one who put forth the effort. Jesus is the one who took on the suffering and the pain. Jesus is the image of the transcendent becoming imminent. And what's our response? What does Mark chapter 9, verse 7 say? A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. And what does it say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Maybe it's time that we take Jesus at his word. And when he says things like, take heart because I have overcome the world, when he says things like, I've come near to you, when he says things like, I've come to show you the kingdom of God, when he comes and he says that I've become the bridge over the gap to usher you in to glory, what would change in your life if you started to listen? I think it would change your posture. I think our posture would change to one of worship and submission. Because at the heart of the glory of God, what we see is the love of a father that was poured out for his children. Let's pray. God, Father, we thank you, God, for the goodness of who you are. 
that God, that because of our sin and our wickedness, God, your, your glory came near. The unknowable became known. And God, we can now rest knowing that we have one who has paved the way to usher us into glory. And so God, while we are in this now, not yet, as we still long to wait for the fullness of the kingdom, for when you come again, God, might you help remind us of the words that you've spoken, of the power that you've poured out, of the presence that you've gifted us with to get us through, to find rest in you as we long to sit in the fullness of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.